Good morning. Take your Bibles if you would. Let's turn together to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And then you'll also want to find Genesis 1 as well. Psalm 8 and Genesis 1. We are exploring some of the unsolved mysteries of the Christian faith. And we're nearing the end of this series. Lord willing, next time we'll come back to uh, the mystery of knowing God. But uh, this morning we want to look at the mystery of man. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 and verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, the psalmist asks a great question there in verse 4. What is man that that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. So let's explore the answer to that question this morning. And it is a mysterious, it's a mysterious question and a mysterious answer. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And we're going to find out with the mystery of man, as with some of the other mysteries we've explored, this mystery involves paradoxes, where there are seemingly contradictory truths that that we have to hold in tension, that Truths that are in juxtaposition with each other. And we've seen that with some of the other mysteries. We'll see it this morning. So if you have your bulletin, there's that listening God on the back panel. Let's look, let's consider then this mystery of man. First of all, notice that we are image bearers. We are image bearers. Now, save Psalm 8. We're not done there. We're going to come back to it. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation account. And in Genesis 1 and verse 26... Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now notice in verses 26 and 27, four times, in two verses, four times the Bible tells us that God created man in his own image, in his own likeness, four times in two verses. In chapter 5 and verse 1, it says that in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Over in chapter 9, it says this in chapter 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So murder is a capital offense. The murderer shall be put to death. Why? Because he killed someone made in the image of God. The value of human life is tied to that fact, that that every life counts to God because we are image bearers. We are created in the image of God. And then that truth is reiterated through the Scriptures and into the New Testament as well. Now, as much as the Bible emphasizes the fact that we are created in the image of God, The Bible never explains that. (laughs) What does that mean to be created in the image of God? Well, here's here's where theologians jump in and earn their pay, and they try to be helpful. So 
here's a little bit of what it means to be created in the image of God. Here we go. Number one, it means we are rational beings. As image bearers, created in the image of God, we are rational beings. God is rational. God is intelligent. God is sentient. He is self-aware. And we are created in his image. God made us rational thinking beings. We are, again, we are self-aware as well. He gave us the capacity to think and to reason and to study and to learn. We theorize and philosophize. We design and build and engineer and plan and we can create and communicate. And these are all functions of intelligence. We are intelligent beings created in the image of an intelligent God. But now here's the problem. Sin comes into the picture and sin corrupts our thinking. We talked about that last week, how sin makes us stupid. <laughs> and sin corrupts our, our thinking, perverts our thought processes. Um, over in Genesis 6, in the, in, the, in the season of the flood, it says this, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. His, his thought process was so, so pervaded by evil that it warranted destruction. Well, we are rational beings. Here's the next thing. We are moral beings. As image bearers, we are moral beings. God is holy and righteous and just, and God has a very clear standard of what is right and wrong. He is a moral God. We're created in his image. We are moral creatures as well. We have an innate sense of right and wrong and fair play and justice. Even without the law of God, we, we, even, even apart from the law, we have that conscience. That's God's Moral impression on our own conscience. We, the, the natural man, again, apart from the word of God, has an instinctive sense of right and wrong and, and, and justice and fair play. Now, that conscience can be perverted and dulled and hardened and twisted by sin uh, like anything else. But we're moral beings. We, we know how things are, and we also have a sense of how things ought to be. So we do have a sense of right and wrong. Again, it can be perverted but we have a sense of right and wrong we're moral beings thirdly we are relational beings we are relational beings god is relational we studied the trinity some weeks ago in the godhead we have god the father god the son god the holy spirit and there is an eternal communion between the members of the godhead god is a covenant making covenant keeping god god is relational and he's created us in his image we too are relational. We long for relationships. We need relationships. We, we, we need people. We do not do well in isolation. We need other people. We are, we are relational. Now, again, sin comes into the picture and messes everything up. Sin makes relationships hard. As much as we need people, people drive us crazy. <laughs> and, and relationships are hard. Sin makes relationships a lot harder than we, we would want them to be. And sin and fear and selfishness and all the rest, it can, it can strain our relationships or make them almost impossible. But we are relational beings. And then we are spiritual beings. As image bearers, we are spiritual beings. Jesus told us that God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and he has created us spiritual beings. What does it mean to be a spiritual being? Well, we need God. God created us with a need for him. There's a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. Nothing else in the world, nothing else in life can fill that, that God-shaped vacuum in our lives. We, we have a longing for God. 
Uh, my understanding is that every known culture or civilization has some form of religion, some kind of, of man reaching out to something out there. There's got to be more. There's got to be a higher power or God of some sort or another. But that, that's just that, that longing for God. And then God created us as spiritual beings. That means we have a capacity to know him, a capacity for our relationship with him. Again, sin comes in and messes everything up. Because of sin... That capacity is dead. We are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. That spiritual aspect of us is, is dead, separated from God. When you repent and put your faith and trust in Christ, when you get saved, God makes you alive to God in Christ. He awakens that spiritual aspect. That's how we have a relationship with God. We're born from, a, born from above or born again. Uh, we're born of him. And so he gives us that that new life, regeneration. So that's part of what it means to be in his image. When it's all said and done, it's mysterious. We are created in the image of God. That's, that's mysterious. But we are created, we are image bearers. Now notice this, we are glorified dust. Here's one of those paradoxes. We are glorified dust. Let's go back to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 and verse 5. You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You've made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. <laughs> We're glorified. We're crowned with glory, and yet we are dust. Now, let's break this paradox down. First of all, we're glorified. How has God crowned us with glory and majesty? Well, in one sense, we are the crown of creation. We are the crown of creation. Back in Genesis 1, in the creation account, God's creation of Adam and Eve is the climax of the creation account. They, they are the, it's the high point of creation. They are the crowning act of creation when God created Adam and Eve. Go over to chapter 2, Genesis 2, verse 7. We just read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust. That's different. In Genesis 1, we hear, you know, God said, let there be, and there was. God said, let there be, and there was. But now God gets his hands dirty, if you will, so to speak. God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We don't hear language like that in chapter 1 about any other aspect of creation. God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and man became a living being, a living soul. We don't hear that language of anything else in creation. Man is distinct. He is the, the crowning act of creation, and he is crowned with glory and majesty. Also notice that we are we are a little lower than God and the angels in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. Here's that glorified part of the glorified dust. Crowned, we are a little lower than God. In the Hebrew, the word God here translates the Hebrew word for Elohim. The Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim can mean God, can refer to God. It can be gods with a little g, just gods. It can refer to heavenly beings like angels, or it can refer to earthly rulers. So it just depends on the context, and the context tells you what's in view. How do you use this term? Is Elohim God, a gods, angels, or what? Over in Hebrews, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about Jesus Christ, and he quotes Psalm 8. Now, he quotes Psalm 8 from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Septuagint uses the word angels to translate this word Elohim. 
And so in Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was a little lower than angels, talking about his incarnation. And while he was uh, here on the earth during his earthly ministry, he was for a little while made a little lower than the angels. Now, both of those statements are true. We are lower than God, and we're lower than angels. And if you're lower than angels, then you're going to be lower than God. But that's, that's amazing. We are a little lower than God and the angels. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd, be rather, I'd rather be a little lower than angels than a little bit better than apes. <laughs> so, just saying. Well, we're the crown of creation. We are a little lower than God and angels. And thirdly, we have dominion over the earth. This is the glorified part of glorified dust. We have dominion over the earth. We read that in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28. Again, two times in three verses. Speaks of our dominion. Here in Psalm 8, he speaks of it in verse 6. You made him at man to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, whatever passes through the seas. God gave mankind dominion over the rest of creation. That's another distinction between humanity and the rest of creation. Human beings are not a part of the animal kingdom. We're over the animal kingdom. Humans are not animals, and animals are not humans. Now, I know you love your dogs, but your dog is not a people. You know, people are not animals. Animals are not people. God gave humanity dominion over the earth. We are created in the image of God. We are living souls, and we have dominion over the earth. That means God gave us the responsibility and the ability to explore and discover and develop and steward the earth and its resources. He gave us dominion over the earth. So there's the crowning part. There's the glorified part. He's crowned us with glory and majesty. We are glorified dust. Now, the other side of that paradox, we're dust. <laughs> we're special dust, but we are dust. Well, what does that mean? We came from the dust. In Genesis 2-7, we just read, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In Genesis 3-19, at the fall, God told Adam, by the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We are from dust. Now, what are the implications of being dust? <laughs> what are the implications of being glorified dust? Well, here's what that means. Number one, we have humble origins. We are reminded of our humble origins, and that's a cause for our humility. We, you know, my, my grandmother would say, don't get too big for your britches, boy. You know, we, we don't need to get too big for our britches. We are dust. Now, in, he, in, over here in Psalm 8, verse 4, the writer uses two different words for man. We just have man in English, but there's two different words in the Hebrew. In Psalm 8, 4, what is man that you take thought of him? That word man is enosh, and it speaks of weakness and frailty. We'll come back to that. And the son of man that you care for him. Now that word man, that's Adam or Adam, Adam. There is a play on words in Genesis 1 through 3 with the name Adam. Adam, that word man, Adam, Adam, it can be a man. It can be Adam, the first man, or it can refer to mankind. And it's used all three ways in Genesis 1 through 3. It's a play on words. And then you add to that, here's another twist. We don't hear it in our, in our English Bibles. But the word ground is based on the word Adam. Adam is man. Ground is Adamah. So it's Adam and Adamah. 
And so there's this whole play on words. There's a play on words, and there's a real connection between man and the ground. God made Adam from the Adamah, and Adam is going to work the Adamah, and one day Adam's going to die, and he's going to go back to the Adamah. <laughs> so we could put it in English. You'd hear it in English if it, if it said this. God made man out of the dust of the earth and named him Dusty. You know, that's, that's the idea. Uh, God, God formed a man. He got playing in the mud and made a man. And what you going to call that thing? Well, let's call him dirt. You know, because he came out of the dirt. That's the idea. Adam came from the Adamah. We are dust. We came out of the ground, and we're going to return to the ground. We have humble origins. We hear that humility in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, and you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's just a reminder. We're not God. We're not on par with God. God's not at our beck and call. He's not our servant. He's God. He's in the heavens. We're dust. <laughs> Mind your manners and know your place. He's God. We are but dust. You hear Abraham with that sense of humility. In Genesis 18, you have that famous conversation between God and Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. God has told Abraham what God's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins to intercede for the theoretical righteous population of Sodom and Gomorrah. God, will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? And hence we have this negotiation. And in the middle of that conversation, Abraham says this, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, though I am but dust and ashes. Otherwise, Lord... If I may, if you please, I, I, I know my place. It's just humility, an expression of humility, deference. I am dust and ashes. We come from humble origins. And then it also speaks of our fragile bodies. We are but dust. And again in verse 4, what is man? Well, that's that word enosh. And it speaks of weakness and frailty. Over in Philippians in the New Testament, Paul says that God will transform the body of our humble state or our lowly body. King James says our vile bodies into conformity with the body of his glory. These, these humble bodies, lowly bodies, the body of our humble state. You know, our, the, the human body is amazing. It is amazing. It's a miracle. It's so complex, so intricate, so finely tuned, so balanced. It really, the human body screams creator. There's no way that something this complex, this intricate, this finely tuned could just evolve and adapt and, and turn into its... No. It says there's a divine genius. There is a design in the creation. There is a, there's a creator. And the body is so complex and so mysterious and so strong and so resilient and yet so frail at the same time. It doesn't take much for, to make the body not work right. It doesn't take much to disable a body or to make the body stop working altogether. We are but dust. It speaks of our frailty. And then it speaks of our short lives. To be of dust, it speaks of our short lives, our short lifespan. Go with me to Psalm 103. You're in Psalm 8. Just go over to 103. Psalm 103 and verse 13. Well, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, 
His days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. So there, we're, we're, God knows we're but dust. And then he talks about how short our lives are. We're like the flower in the field. I mean, you're here today, gone tomorrow, and forgotten the day after. I mean, it's just well, short lives. In Psalm 144, uh, the psalmist asked this, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? That's our question. Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. James says the same thing in the New Testament. Your life's like a vapor, appears for a little while, and fades away. We are but dust. Our, our days are few. Man born of woman is a few days. Our lives are short. And then, fourthly, we have hard limitations. As human beings made of dust, there are hard limits to, to what we can do, what we can know, our strength, our abilities, capabilities, our knowledge. I mean, there are hard limits. We, we know a lot, but we don't even know what we don't know. We don't know everything. We don't even know what we don't know. It's mysterious. We can do a lot. But you know what? You'll never be able to lift 5,000 pounds. As strong as you get, not, no matter how much you work out, you're not going to be able to There are the limits on what we can do physically. There are limits on what we can know. There are limits as the human race. There are limits on what we can do as the human race. No matter what our technological achievements, there's going to be limits. You know, we can't fix, fix man. People are crazy, and we can't fix that. People are just not. We can't fix it. James says you can't even tame the tongue. We might be able to tame some of the wildest animals, but we can't tame man's own tongue there are hard limits on what we can do what we can know what we can achieve we 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 can't control the weather we can barely even predict the weather <laughs> but we can't stop the weather it's just there are hard limits and then there's certain death that we are but dust speaks of death everyone dies dust to dust god told adam in genesis 3 by the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return and what god told him applies to you and to me as well it is appointed unto man once to die and after this judgment paul said in adam that's us in adam all die we are but dust we came from the ground and we go back to the ground dust to dust but we're glorified dust. <laughs> glorified dust. What a mystery. What a mystery. What a paradox. And then here's another mystery. We are insignificant treasures. The mystery of man. We are insignificant treasures. Again, it's a paradox. What would prompt David to ask the question in Psalm 8:4? What is man that you take thought of him or the son of man that you care for him? Where did that question come from? Well, it kind of tells us. We can relate to this in, in verse 1. He says, you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And then in verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? I think we've all been here, done that. I can just see David. He's outside on a, on a dark, starry night. And he's gazing up at the heavens and he sees the moon and the stars. And he's just mesmerized and mystified by the heavens, how vast and mysterious the heavens are and how small he is. <laughs> now, we know more about the heavens than he did. We ought to be even more mystified and more awestruck. But I think he's just mystified by how mysterious and vast the heavens are and how little bitty he is. Haven't you had that experience? Maybe you've stood on the, on the ocean, you've stood on the beach, and you look out over, over, over the ocean, and it's just, it's just so vast. It's so big. You, you feel so small compared to that big ocean. Or if you ever have any doubt about that, go out there and heavy surf and let one big wave just 
bounce you on the ocean floor like a rag doll. <laughs> it's just a lesson. I'm so small. And the ocean is so big and so powerful. Or if you've ever been out in the blue water, out in the deep sea on a ship or something like that, we are so small, so small, so insignificant. They tell us now that there are just under, there's 7.9 billion people in the world today. Isn't that something? They're all out here on Wilma Rudolph on Saturday afternoons. And they're on Warfield Boulevard every weekday at 4.30, just so you know. I found them all. Eight billion people in the world. We can't even imagine that. That's not even a real number. Eight billion people? What's one person? What's one life out of eight billion? Now, can we be honest? If you or I died today, most of those eight billion people would not know and would not care that you or I died today. It would be a relatively small number of people who would know or care that you or I passed away. And even among those who do know and do care, even your closest friends, your closest family, those who know you the most and love you the most and who would miss you the most, they're going to get on with their lives and life's going to carry on. And in your own family in a generation or two, you'll be forgotten. Your grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids, they're not going to know you. They won't remember you. You'll just be a name on a genealogy chart or in the front of the family Bible. I mean, that's that's just life, isn't it? Our lives are short. We're so small, so insignificant. This frustrated the writer of Ecclesiastes to no end. He said this in Ecclesiastes 2. He said, There's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. You know, we're celebrating our graduates this morning, graduate recognition. I got bad news for the graduates. The world's not just waiting with open arms to welcome you because you've graduated. <laughs> it's not like that at all. Those graduates, they're going out into a cold, hard world. And the world doesn't owe you anything. The world's not going to give you anything. It's going to take a whole lot more than it ever gives. It's just a cold world. We are so small, so temporal, insignificant, not to mention sinful. We are absolutely through and through sinful. Uh, the Bible says our hearts are deceitful above all else, desperately wicked. Who can know it? We are, absolutely, we, are, we are by nature children of death, conceived in sin. We are sinful through and through. Now you add all that together. We are insignificant, temporal, small, sinful, and yet God takes thought of us and God cares for us. That's mysterious, isn't it? That's a, that's a mystery. That's, but it says more about God than it does us. That's, that's the mystery of God's love as well and who God is and what God does. If, if you are a parent, you can relate to this. When you, when you have a baby, especially your first one, um, but it's true for all your children, grandchildren, but especially that first one, you're just blown away by how immediately you love that baby, how much you, you are absolutely in love with that child from the moment it's born. You just love that baby. Now, that baby doesn't deserve your love. In fact, all it's done is cause a lot of trouble. Inconvenience, pain, expense. This child has done nothing but cause trouble, and yet you, you're going to rearrange your life around this baby, and you're going to sacrifice for this baby, and you would die for that baby. You love that baby so completely, so thoroughly, so immediately. Well, that's kind of the way God is with us. We don't deserve his love. We're a, lot of, we're a lot more trouble than we're worth. And yet God loves us completely and thoroughly. You know, there's, there's a little bit of conventional wisdom 
something is only worth what somebody will give you for it. You've heard that, right? You know, I've got a million-dollar watch right here. Did you know Walmart sells million-dollar Timexes? They do. I've got a million-dollar watch. What will you give me for it? Well, if all anybody will give me is $20, it's not a million-dollar watch, is it? It's a $20 watch from Walmart. We are small, temporal, sinful, insignificant. You're worth what somebody will give for you. Well, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. You're worth what somebody would give for you. God proved his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what you're worth to God. Insignificant. <laughs> Treasure. You are priceless to God. Worth dying for to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's mysterious. In the grand scheme of history, in, in the grand scheme of the vastness of the universe, in the grand scheme of the human population, Jeff Burris is a nothing and a nobody. I'm a, I mean, I'm, I'm just a sinner living a short life in a frail body. I'm nothing and a nobody. And by the way, same is true for you. And yet, Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you. He died for you. You're worth what somebody give for you. He gave his life for you. Why would he do that? Because he's a relational God, and he wants you to have a relationship with him, and he wants you to know him and worship him and serve him and enjoy him forever. That's, that's the mystery of man and the mystery of God all in one place. He loves you, and he wants you to love him back. Have you been saved have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If not, today's the day and now's the time. In a moment, we want to stand up and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus or I want to be saved, however you want to say it. And we'd love to have a private conversation with you and pray with you if you'd like to. But you can leave here today a child of God in a relationship with God, your sins forgiven, in heaven, your home. Maybe you're looking for a church home. If God has brought you here, we'd love to have you. You could come forward and say, I want to join the church. And we'll take it from there. Maybe you need to follow him in baptism. We can talk about that. Maybe you just need to pray with somebody. We'd love to pray with you. But whatever God may be laying on your heart this morning, we invite you to come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Lord, it's, it, it, we're mystified by who we are and what we are. On the one hand, we're glorified dust, insignificant treasures, image bearers of the one true God. Lord, that's... That's mysterious and glorious and humbling all at the same time. It's a mystery. And what's even more mystifying is that you would love us, that you would give your son to die for us, that you want us, that you want to save us and spend eternity with us. Lord, we, that's mystifying. But Lord, we praise you and worship you because of it. I pray for the one who's never been saved. Help them to see their sin and your son and bring them to the cross even now that they might be saved. Take charge of this time of decision, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.